Amen. You may be seated. I'm not uh, usually one for holiday messages. I, uh, I've just never been inclined in that direction and didn't prepare anything like that for today. But this morning, the Lord changed my message. We've been teaching on a series in, of, uh, uh, on righteousness. And I was intending and planned to and prepared to speak along that line. But the Lord brought some things to my attention here over the last several days. And, um, and so I just want to share some things with you this morning. It seems, and it's Father's Day related, um, well, I think it is. We'll just see where we wind up, I guess. There are um, uh, a number of recent studies that have been done over the last several years where parents were questioned about what do they want most for their children. And hands down, the overwhelming majority response is, I just want my children to be happy. Well, I don't. I don't want my children to be happy. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't want them to be miserable. But I want my children to know God. Because if they know God, then they can find His will for their life, and that will bring them happiness. If you look at the decline, uh, the moral decline of the country, and anybody that's 30 years old or more can certainly see and evidence of that and, and without going into details. But if you look at the moral decline of our country, you can trace it back down, back to the breakdown of the family. The country started going down when American families started changing. But if you look at the breakdown of the family, moms haven't gone anywhere. Moms are doing the same thing they were 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and so forth. The breakdown of the family is easily identified as absent fathers. Now, the Bible says that we should train up our children in the way that they should go. I don't think any Christian, and there are more Christians alive on the face of the earth today than ever ever been, I don't think any Christian would say that they don't want their faith passed down to their children. Yet the studies show that more and more the further we go, the more it increases. That children are not staying with and following the faith of their parents. How come? You know, there's, uh, there's one and only one thing that I've ever found in the Bible that identifies why God picked Abraham. Or intimates, implies why God might have picked Abraham. Abraham was an idol worshiper just like everybody else in the world on the face of the earth was at that time. Nobody knew God. Everybody was trying to find their own gods. There was a multiplicity of gods that were being worshipped by most people. But there's one thing that the Bible says about Abraham that might be a hint. And I can't even say definitively that it is, that it's the cause. I'm pretty well assured in my own heart that it is, but you can't prove it. But in Genesis chapter 18, on the eve of God's action to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he said this. 
He said about Abraham, he said, Shall I hide from Abraham that which I do? Seeing that he shall become a great nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. Now here's what God said about Abraham. For I know him, that he will teach his children to know the ways of the Lord, to do justice and judgment. That's always struck me as being real important. The one thing God said about Abraham is he said, I know him. Well, what did he know about him? That he would teach his children the ways of the Lord. I don't think there's any greater goal. I don't think there's any greater target we can draw. But that our children would know the ways of the Lord. That our children would know the ways of the Lord. It would be nice if there was a curriculum that the church could produce for families and just do this once a week, do this twice a month, whatever it is, this will make sure that your children turn out right. That'd be great, wouldn't it? But the reality is our children learn from the parents, whether right or wrong, whether good or bad. And it's a very, very rare thing for children to have a greater love for God than their parents did. Very rare. Children who see their parents read the Bible, read the Bible. Children that see their parents pray, learn to pray. Children that see their parents worship God, worship God. It's learned, it's not just taught. And if children see their parents show up at church once a month, then they learn that church is not important. Children that see their parents act differently at church than they act in real life learn what it means to be a hypocrite. Now those are the things that studies are showing as reasons why kids don't go to church or why families aren't in church very often. The children come away with the idea, and children are always learning, whether positive or negative, whether they're learning good things or bad things. Children are always learning. And it seems that the two, two main things that cause children to turn away from the faith of their parents is overbearing parents that are all about rules instead of relationships when it comes to Christianity. And parents who are hypocrites. Parents that don't live the faith that they say they believe. Jonathan Edwards was an early American revivalist. He died in 1958, which was before the revolution of 1776. So he died, what is that, 18 years before then? And it was, uh, he was very well known, very famous in the uh, the, the colonies that were then. And it was known of him, one of the things that was most greatly known of him was his prayer life. His prayer life started off at 5 o'clock in the morning. He'd go out away from the towns of the villages where he was. He'd go out into the woods. 
And he'd pray every day for at least an hour. Now, because he's out praying in, in the woods, it was something that everybody knew was going on. I mean, he's out there and he's praying, he's praying loud. And they asked him what he prayed about for so long. Because that was an unheard of experience the way that he did it. And he told whoever asked the question, it became known, that one of the things that he prayed for was his children's children to the fifth generation. Now, if I'm doing the math right on that, that's his great-grandchildren's grandchildren. Who would think to do that? But that's what he did. That was part of his prayer life. Well, in 1900, Yale University, who was connected with the Edwards family to a great degree, and he was part of the foundation of the, of the college as far as their tenets and doctrines and so forth. They, had, they respected him highly. In 1900, they did a study. Somebody came up with the idea, well, if he prayed for his children's children to the fifth generation, what's his family look like now? And so they did the research and the family history and the family tree and all that kind of stuff that they do. And they found that in those 150 years, from 1758, from the time of his death, to 1900, when the study was done or commissioned, they found that there were hundreds of college-educated people in his family, college graduates as we would call them today. There were 60 doctors, 100 lawyers. That was a good thing back then. <laughs> and 30 judges. There were 13 of his family that had been politicians, representatives of the early American government and stuff along those lines. One that had even become vice president by that time. And they thought, well, the country is young, and maybe that's just the way it is. So they wanted to contrast it with some other family. So they picked a petty thief called Max Dewar, and they looked at his family for the last 150 years. He was a, a, a petty thief at the time of Edward's life. And so they wanted to see what was the result of his family. There was not one college graduate. There was not one person of renown. No doctors, no lawyers, no judges, no anyone of importance. Folks' fathers set the course for their families. Now, I have the utmost respect for single mothers. I have utmost respect for the job that single mothers do. Not only their job, but trying to do the job of the father as well. And so I mean nothing disparagingly in any way by what I'm saying about this. But God's plan was for fathers to set the direction for the family. God said of Abraham, I know him. I know what he'll train his children to do. Now, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6, I believe it is, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. 
That's a real bad translation. I wish that's what it really said. But that's not what it says. The translation should say this. Train up a child in the way he should go. And should he depart, when he's older, he'll return. See, a lot of times the devil uses the misinterpretation of that verse to try to bring people under condemnation because their kids have departed from the Lord. Well, you must not have trained them right. You must have done something wrong. But that's not really what it says. It's as if children depart, and they have a will of their own. They can depart from the faith that they're brought up with. But if they're trained, then they'll return to what they were trained to. Now, the word train is interesting because it does not mean teach. It means to live an example in front of. Train up a child in the way she go. Show him your Christian life. Show him your relationship with God. Show him what it's like to be a true believer. Children will return to that, even if they depart for a while. Why do you think it is that the devil's attack on the family created absent fathers? Could it be that he knows something that we hadn't figured out yet as far as the role of the father, the importance of the father in the family? It's a sad thing that Hollywood and all these sitcoms and whatever programs they produce always portray the father as the doofus, the idiot that mom somehow has to overcome and Make things work out well in spite of. And in the few shows over the last 20 or 30 years that have portrayed Christians, the Christian father is the stupidest man on the face of the earth. Could it be the devil knows something about that? Could it be that the devil knows if you can attack the father, demean the father, make fun of the Father, then that makes the message clear and plain for Christian fathers not to stand up and be who they're supposed to be. That's certainly been the result. So the devil either hit up on that accidentally or he had a specific goal in mind because that's the way things have gone. God said of Abraham, I know him. He'll teach his children to know the ways of the Lord. Now the other side of that is what God said because he knew him. Shall I hide from him that which I do? Folks, there is no one that should be more in the know about God's future plans and what God's doing in the earth than the Christian father. Nobody. God said, I will not hide from Abraham what I'm doing because he's the father that will teach his children to know the ways of the Lord. Part of the work of the Holy Ghost is to show us things to come. 
There's nobody on the planet that that should be more true of than the Christian father. As fathers, we have a right to know the future and the God's hope and God's plan for our families. I think Jonathan Edwards is a good example for us of what to do once we know how to pray for our families. How to teach them. How to raise them up. There are so many things that are prevalent in our society today that can be traced back to the children's relationship with their parents, particularly the fathers, and the desire of children to please their fathers. There's a desire in kids to please their fathers that is not the same for the mothers. Now, it should be. I mean, it would make sense for it to be. But so much of the dysfunction, so much of the, of the therapy that people are in has to do with their parents, particularly the fathers. God put something there. There's something about that relationship between fathers and their children that is supposed to be inviolable, that is supposed to be such. that can't be broken. Could you imagine any parent not wanting their children to know God at least as well as they do? There would never be a Christian that would have that desire. But why is that desire not fulfilled? Well, in large part, because the fathers are not teaching the children as they should. Every generation has to be reached for God. And the best church to reach them is the home. It's easy to say the church isn't doing their job. And no matter what the situation is, the church could always do a better job. But the church is not the primary responsible one for the teaching of children. That's supposed to be for the parents. Now, when you think back about what God said about Abraham, why didn't he say anything about Sarah? Sarah's responsible for teaching the children too, isn't she? It took just as much faith on Sarah's part to bring forth their son Isaac when she was 90 and Abraham was 100 as it did for Abraham, didn't it? It was just as much an impossible act on her side of the reproductive equation as it was for Abraham. And the Bible includes Sarah in the Heroes Hall of Fame in in Hebrews chapter 11. So why did God single out Abraham? It's because of the place that the fathers have in the raising of the children. Jonathan Edwards' example of praying for his children and their children to the fifth generation convicts me I've gotten to my grandkids. But I don't pray past my grandkids. That's because I've only had grandchildren. If I had great-grandchildren, maybe I'd be impressed or inspired to do that at that point. I don't know. 
But for this guy, Jonathan Edwards I'm talking about, to pray for his great-grandchildren, grandchildren, fifth, fifth generation, five generations, that says to me, I've got a lot of praying to do. That says to me, I need to change and alter the ways that I'm praying. And God certainly honored his prayers. Even as the Bible said, he made his seed mighty in the earth. Which should be the goal for us all. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to be Christian fathers, to follow your example on how to be good to our children and good to our families. Father, you know we want the best for our children, but that's not what we ask for. We don't ask that they would be rich, healthy, or even prosperous even happy we ask that they would know you that you would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened that they would know the hope of your calling your plan and purpose for their lives the exceeding riches of your inheritance in the saints and your great power that works in them as believers. Now, Father, we reach out further. We know Jesus is coming soon, and we don't know how long it's going to be. But it seems that the time is short. But should he delay, we pray that our families, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, their children and their children, would have a greater desire and hunger and fervor for the Lord than even we do. We pray, Father, that you would scatter them into society, the society of their time, as agents of God, sharp arrows to pierce into the work of the enemy. To glorify the name of Jesus. Whether as ministers or as laymen. We ask you Father. That you would make our families great in the earth. For the glory of God. We ask that your plan and your purpose would be realized in each and every one. Of our offspring. Lord, we ask also that you would strengthen us to be a better example than we've ever been to our children and to all our families. That we would know your plans and your purposes, even that which is to come. That we might impart spiritual wisdom, and the goodness of God to all those that are born of us.
Father, we pray that our offspring would be firebrands for Jesus in whatever they do in life. We thank you for the help of the Holy Spirit to strengthen us, to guide us. To lead us to be the head of the families as we should be. Providers of that which is good. Let them see, let our children see your hand upon us as an example of your goodness. Lord, we don't pray that they'll always have it easy. We pray that they'll always find you. They would find that you're the source of their strength, the source of their supply, the source of their healing, the source of their help. In the precious and holy name of Jesus. And Father, for those families who have children that have departed from their faith, we ask that you would move in a supernatural way, even spectacular manner, to bring them home. To bring them back to what they were taught. Bring them back, Lord. In Jesus' name. We love you, Father. We magnify your goodness and your mercy. You've been so merciful to us. You've been faithful. Faithful to your word. Faithful to see us through. And because of that, Father, we know who you are. We pray the same for our families. Our children, their children, their children, their children, their children, and their children. That they would know you in all things. Lord, we bless you. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Okay, sermon number two now. No, I'm just teasing. I've got a clock. They made sure to put a clock right back there where I can see what time it is. Let's all stand. Well, this is a different day for us. Got a holiday message and you beat the Baptist to the restaurant. <laughs> Let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Thank you for being such a good heavenly father to us. And for his help. For us to be good. In following his example. We love you father. We thank you so much for all that you've done for us. There's no greater thing than to know you. No greater thing than to know your word is true. To know that you watch over it, to perform it, to know that you're faithful. To see that every promise that we take hold of by faith comes into reality. We love you, Father. We thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Have a great Father's Day. <laughs>